Um, we are in Luke chapter 4. We're in a series walking through Luke's gospel. And if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and go to Luke chapter 4, find it. And uh, today's sermon is entitled, When the Devil Comes to Church. Hopefully that's none of you. You guys ready? Woo! We're going to get it today. All right. Last week, a little earlier in Luke chapter 4, we saw that Jesus went preaching in his hometown, Nazareth. He's a prophet who's being dishonored in his own country. They kick him out. They don't like what he has to say. They actually try to kill him. So Jesus passes through their midst, and now we see probably about a week later, he's gone to a neighboring town of Capernaum. Capernaum is this small seaside town in the region of Galilee. Capernaum is the, the hometown of Nahum, the prophet. It's where it gets its name, Capernaum. Uh, it's also the hometown of Simon Peter. So this is going to become the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. And actually up through, I think it's about Luke 19, the rest of uh, a huge portion before Jesus goes toward Jerusalem, he's going to be doing ministry out of Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee in this region. So that's where we're at. And we pick up the story in Luke chapter 4, verse 31 and 32. And he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and as he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So here we learn a little bit more about Jesus' style of ministry. He's a rabbi, he's a, he's a traveling preacher and teacher, and here he's preaching in a synagogue at Capernaum on the Sabbath. And as Jesus is preaching and teaching, people are blown away. They're getting their socks knocked off. They're amazed because he didn't teach like anyone else they'd ever heard. Right? Jesus did not bore people with the Bible. Listen, that's one of the greatest sins I think we can do is bore people with the Bible. Right? Jesus does not bore them. He shows up very passionate, empowered by the Holy Spirit for ministry, and people were amazed because they'd never heard anyone like Jesus. Right? Next verse. And then something happens in this little synagogue in Capernaum. And in the synagogue, verse 33... There was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. One thing you're going to see here over and over is that demons have some of the best theology and Christology in the whole Bible. Demons know who Jesus is. A lot of other people, they don't know who Jesus is. Demons get it. They know who he is. He's the Holy One of God. He's unique among everybody, a category unto himself, one of a kind, the Holy One of God. That's our Jesus, right? And so as he's preaching here in the synagogue, who shows up? A demonized man with an unclean demon. He's going to use that phrase, unclean demon, about 23 times throughout the book of Luke. And Jesus keeps having these power encounters with demons. Why? Well, because as the kingdom of God comes, there's mounting opposition from the kingdom of darkness. There's this battle that's raging throughout the Gospel of Luke all the way up to the crucifixion of Jesus. So as we walk through this series, you're going to get really familiar with Satan and demons. And what we see here is this demonized man was in the synagogue. Devil came to church. Listen, don't think for a moment that all the people in church are good and all the demonized people are out there. Demonized people come and they gather in with God's people too. Just like Satan filled Judas Iscariot, just like he enticed him toward his murderous betrayal of Jesus, so too, even in the church, Satan will empower some. And for those who are unbelievers, even possess. Why? Because he likes to cause all kinds of conflict and confusion and controversy. We've seen this even in our own church in this past year because whenever God wants to do a work, the enemy shows up and tries to wreck it. Jesus is the good shepherd. Pastors are under shepherds. People are sheep and Satan loves to send in wolves to ravage the flock and attack the under shepherds and scatter the sheep. So here you see a demonized man who comes to church. He's gathering among God's people and they don't even know it. This isn't like the wild man of Gadara we're going to read about in a few chapters who's running around naked, 
living in cemeteries, howling at the moon. People are trying to bind him with chains and they can't. He breaks the chains through all these demonic power. This guy is just obviously demon-possessed, right? This, this guy here in Luke 4, though, he's not like that guy at all. This guy's well-dressed. Fits in. He's very religious. This guy seems to be a respectable member of the community. But when Jesus shows up, all of a sudden, this guy shows his true color. So what we need to do for a few moments here is to study Satan and demons. And as we do, many of you would say, why? Why did you choose to study Satan and demons? We didn't. God did. God put it here in the scriptures. We preach through books of the Bible. And one of the reasons why we preach through books of the Bible is because sometimes it brings us to topics we're not necessarily super comfortable with or that we wouldn't ordinarily pick on our own. But we're going to learn about Satan and demons repeatedly in Luke, so we might as well just do a deep dive here. What do you say? All right. Let me preface this with a quote from a good book about Satan and demons written by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. Many of you may have written, or uh, not written it. Maybe you have, like a scribe. You've just sat there and copied each page. But uh, here's what he says. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race could fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So as soon as you start to say demons, people have one of two reactions, right? Some people disbelieve immediately. They're like, demons don't exist. I don't believe in them. Move on. You're making me feel super uncomfortable right now, right? That's some of you. That's okay, right? Two, others of you do believe. But you'll have an unhealthy, excessive obsession with Satan and demons You'll blame them for everything like Eve did in Genesis 3. The devil made me do it. You'll find a demon around every corner. The devil made me stub my toe yesterday. The devil burned my tongue on the coffee. Coffee's hot. Hell is hot. It must be a devil. Coffee demon. Right? It's just it's goofy. It's people find demons everywhere, right? So the reason some of you would deny Satan and demons first, you may be influenced by what we call modernism in a few hundred-year enlightenment project where scientific rationalism said there's only physical, there's no spiritual. So you don't believe in the spiritual at all, or at least you don't believe in Satan and demons. Secondly, you may not believe in Satan and demons because you suffer from something called chronological snobbery, right? You think that people in the Bible, they were just primitive, they didn't understand things, so they invented myths, and now you've gone to community college and you're highly developed and evolved and much smarter than they were, right? Third, some of you will deny Satan and demons because you do believe in spirituality, but you're going to the wrong sources for it. It's not rooted in God's truth. Then spirituality opens you up to the demonic. Just because it is spiritual does not mean it is good. Much of what is spiritual is actually demonic and satanic, and we live in a day where as long as you're spiritual, you are fine. You may not be fine. Okay? Your style of meditation and Eastern spirituality and Seemingly innocent palm readings and supernatural experiences may all be linked to the demonic. So, on one hand, I don't want you to deny Satan and demons and settle for false spirituality, right? And on the other hand, I don't want you to have an unhealthy obsession with Satan and demons. I came from a group that had that, and I don't want that here, okay? We believe in them, but we emphasize Jesus. So even though we're going to spend part of this sermon talking about them, what's the main point of the sermon? Jesus, that's right. Okay, so first, we need to know your enemy. Here's why. Christ did, just, just, just as Christ did, we will encounter Satan and demons in our life if we're Christians. Dr. Clinton Arnold, who's a wonderful New Testament scholar, said this. He said, as a servant of Christ, or excuse me, a servant of Christ can no more avoid demons than a gardener can avoid weeds. If you're going to tend your garden, you're going to pull some weeds, If you're going to serve Jesus, you're going to meet some demons. It's just the way it is. Paul says it this way. When we think we're wrestling with people, when we think we're fighting big battles against our mother-in-law or our spouse or somebody else, right? Here's what Paul says. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. If you're a Christian, you've got to realize you have an enemy. 
He is going to attack you, whether you're aware of it or not. And that's what Peter says. Peter says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If you're a Christian, you've got an enemy. And if that's who we're fighting, we need to know our enemy. So let's talk about Satan for a few minutes. Three things about Satan briefly. Satan, first, is not equal to God. Right? It's not like there's two gods. There's the good God, the bad God, the yin and the yang. Star Wars got it wrong. It's not the force and two equal and opposite sides to it. That's, that's Taoism. That's not Christianity. Right? God is the creator. And everyone and everything else is a created thing. And Satan is among created things. Satan was an angel created by God to glorify, honor, serve, and obey him. If you want to know more about that, read, read Isaiah 14. All right, go home and read that. But the first thing you need to know is Satan and demons are not equal to God. They're just created beings. They're angels who rebelled against God, and they were cast out of heaven. So when we're talking about Satan, he's not the creator. God is. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. Only God is. He's not omniscient and all-knowing. God is. He's not omnipotent and all-powerful. God is. Satan does not share the attributes of God. He's not equal to God. He's not the other God. He's just another created being in rebellion against God. Tracking? Number two, Satan is not our only enemy. Satan does his work through false prophets and false teachers and false Christians, and false Christian authors, and false religions, and false ideologies, and false worldviews. Satan does have an entire army at his service of demons and of people who are under his influence. And the Bible in Ephesians 2 gives us three categories of opposition against us. It says that there's the world, the flesh, and the devil. So let's talk about this. First, the devil. Let's talk about the devil refers to Satan and his demons. But even if you're getting attacked spiritually, it's probably not by Satan himself, all right? Satan can only attack one person at a time. He can only send a limited number of demons to attack a limited number of people, all right? So what else is there? Next, there's the flesh. The flesh is our internal predisposition toward rebellion. It's our own self-centered tendencies and proclivities. It's our own sinful desires to rebel against God and to do our own will. It's, it's our own sick heart. And scripture says, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Right? So some of you, your real issue isn't Satan at all. It's your flesh. If there's a limited number of demons, and why, why in the world would Satan send a demon to attack you, especially if you're already destroying yourself? Right? If it's a battle and you keep shooting your toe off, and shooting your brothers and sisters in the back, why in the world would Satan send a demon to try to get you? You're his best soldier, right? You're doing his job for him. And some of you are doing it, some of us are doing it, through habitual, unrepentant sin, false spirituality, religiosity, instead of gospel-centered humility, sexual immorality, bitterness and resentment, self-centeredness and pride, and many, many other things. And we'll get to that. And many of you are bound by these things. Satan doesn't need to attack you. Your flesh is taking care of it. Lastly, there's also the world. The world is this corporate system and structures and ideologies that are opposed to God. If you believe what everyone else believes, if you behave how everyone else behaves, then ultimately you'll be living a demonically influenced life. Because instead of living by God's values and the values of his kingdom, your worldview, your words, your behaviors, your attitudes, your habits, your entire life is being dictated by the influence of God's enemy. The world tempts you to use people for your own gain. The world tempts you to disobey God, to live for your own glory instead of God's, to be a consumer instead of generous, to grab power instead of submitting to God to chase your appetites instead of longing for what God has said is good. That's the world's systems. Like, go rewatch some of your TV shows, some of your, some of your movies that you love, right? And ask yourself, what's the subtext? What's the underlying message? What's the story underneath the story? 
What's this movie, what's this TV show pointing to as the functional Savior? What's it pointing to as the ultimate hope? What's the version of heaven here? And how well does all of that sync up with the story of God? All right, so there's three enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil, and they're all working together to get your flesh to follow the world rather than the word of God. I'm trying to decide if I'm going to go into this next point here because I feel preachy, and I I don't want to preachy preach too much. Okay, all right. Gas for it. Uh, This just came to me last night as I was praying about this. I wrote this section, added it in, and it makes it longer. But we're going to do it. Okay. The battlefield is in your mind. A huge part of the battle takes place right here between your ears. Some of you have no peace in your interior life. You know why? What's the scripture say? Look at at Philippians 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things. And what? And the God of peace will be with you. Some of us have no peace because we are letting our minds dwell on all kinds of junk instead of the things Scripture tells us to dwell on. Paul says elsewhere, we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ, 2 Corinthians. Take every thought captive. Capture it. Tie it up. Don't let it go. Don't let it run away with your imagination. Shut down the negative thoughts. Shut down the evil imagination. Shut down the negative self-talk. Thoughts are powerful. Thoughts reproduce in your life. Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, said, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Your thoughts are going to work their way into your life, so you need to protect your thought life. Ask yourself where your thoughts are originating from. Some of you need this today. Some thoughts come from God, from his word, from godly people who are speaking his word into our life. And some thoughts come from misguided people with faulty worldviews. And some thoughts come from your own heart, its own confused beliefs, its broken desires, its past trauma, its future fears. Some thoughts come directly from your enemy. He's been sowing lies since the beginning, lies that have produced bondage and slavery and brokenness and war and disease and death. Look at what Jesus says in John 8. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is not holding back, therefore I'm not going to hold back on the devil today either. The devil is a liar and a murderer. The devil is like a snake oil peddler. He's coming to like trade you his wares. And he wants to trade you. He wants to take your life and give you death. He wants to take your joy and give you sorrow. The devil comes to take God's truth and give you his lies. But you know what Jesus said just a few verses before that? The same chapter, 12 verses before this in John 8, 32. And you shall know the, yeah, and the truth shall make you free. Lies bind you up into false worldviews, but God's truth sets us free. Lies tell us God doesn't love us. He's not for us. His plan is broken, but God's truth sets us free. Lies tell us they're the problem. It's the liberals. It's the conservatives. This race, this gender, this class, this group, problem. But God's truth sets us free. Lies say you aren't worth it. There's no hope for you. You're beyond saving. But God's truth, what? Sets us free. We need a revival of God's truth in our hearts and lives and worlds. How do we combat Satan's lies? Kenny talked about it two weeks ago. Right? Jesus in the wilderness. Satan comes and he's twisting the word of God. And what's Jesus do? How's Jesus combat the lies? With the truth of God's word. The more you know the word of God, the more you'll be able to distinguish the truth from the lies, the light from the darkness, the freedom from the bondage. Listen to me. Some of you are battling daily, but you don't even realize that there's a war being waged against your soul. Your thoughts attack you. Self-sabotage, and you're not even aware of all the sources of deception that the enemy's using against you. Some of you struggle with consistent 
anxiety and depression and anger and fear and resentment and worry and shame and guilt for stuff God already forgave a long time ago. Listen, you got to get really good at distinguishing fact from fiction. Fact is what God says. Fiction is all the ways that the enemy likes to take that and spin it. The enemy's raging war against your soul. The battlefield is in your mind. It's a battle for truth. Please get to know this book. Okay? Three, you need to know your enemy. Satan is not God. Satan is not your only enemy, and you need to know all about your enemy. You need to know all about Satan. You need to understand him and study him. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says it this way. I love this. Satan won't outwit us, providing we understand his schemes. How many of you here have ever been in a real fight? I've been in two or three, right? I'm not going to go in. Um, I'd love to tell you about them, but... Uh, If you've ever been in a fight, one thing you know is this. The key is to know your opponent and even study them if possible, right? If you don't know your opponent, your odds of losing go way up. You need to know their strengths so you can defend yourself there. You need to know their weaknesses so you can attack them there. You need to study your opponent. You need to know them. Some of you know this. We have a few MMA fighters in our church. We got some military folks, some Navy SEALs. You guys know what I'm talking about. You need to know your enemy. I love watching MMA. I don't love doing it. I'd get hurt. But I love love uh, enjoy watching it. Um, What you find in MMA, which is mixed martial arts, is that there's a lot of different disciplines in martial arts styles, right? There's wrestling and jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai and boxing. And each discipline has its strengths and weaknesses. So if you're a wrestler and you're going up against a guy who's a boxer, what do you need to do? Get him on the ground. Take out The moment he plants that leg, you're in trouble, right? But if you can swipe that leg out from under him, get him on the mat, now who's got the upper hand? You do. Why? Because you know his weaknesses and you know your strengths. You need to know your enemy and his strengths and weaknesses. If you don't know Satan, you will lose way too many fights, okay? So back to the story, and we're going we're gonna to talk about this more. Back to the story. Jesus shows up, God in human flesh, preaching and teaching, and Satan and his demons have somehow gotten access to this guy and this demon starts manifesting Mm. now there's a conflict right all of a sudden the synagogue has been transformed into a mma octagon there's about to be a fight right here at church let's see how the fight goes okay luke 4 35 but jesus rebuked him saying be silent and come out of him and when the demon had thrown him on the ground in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So now they're amazed at Jesus' authority and his power. See, in that day, the, the rabbis, it was kind of like watching, I don't know, the Exorcist or Rosemary's Baby or something like they had these weird incantations and never it went really bad really quickly. There wasn't a lot of authority. There wasn't a lot of power. But Jesus shows up with this divine authority and says, "You go, done. That's the end." It's not a fight, really, right? That's authority. The demons know the authority and power of God, and they get the heck out of there. Now, some of you want to know how. How did this guy get demonized? By the way, the, the, the Bible doesn't generally use the word demon possession. Some translations will. The Bible generally uses the word demonized. And that's an entire range of things. Three main kind of categories of it. It can be internally influenced. That's called obsession. You have obsessions. That can be externally oppressed. Oppression. And that can be completely controlled by a demon. That's possession. So the general categories are oppression, obsession, possession. But how does that happen? I'll use the analogy of a house uh, to build on a metaphor that Jesus uses because he uses the analogy of a house when he's teaching about Satan and demons. So let's look at your body and your life like a house. You live in it, right? Now what happens to your house if you leave all the doors and all the windows open and you just invite all the wrong people over? Like, forget Airbnb, this is free b and I'm going to take my house, open everything up. You guys, anybody that wants, come one, come all, right? 
they move in, what, what's going to happen? They're going to trash the place. They're going to do horrible things, and eventually they're going to torment you, destroy your house, and take over your life. Your life is like that through unrepentant habitual sin, through drunkenness and folly, through sexual immorality, and false spirituality. What you're doing is this. You're opening up all the doors and windows. And you're inviting in unclean people and unclean things. And at some point, it's going to go really, really bad. And some of you don't look at it that way. You think sin is just breaking the law. Well, it is. But sin is more than breaking the law. Sin is also, no, also the opening of a door. How many of you tonight would go home and open up all the doors and windows and just go to sleep in your house? No way. But spiritually speaking, some of us do that every day. And see, what happens is this. If you're a non-Christian, your house doesn't belong to Jesus. Scripture says, ultimately, you either belong to God or it's vacant and up for whoever wants to move in. Right? If you're a non-Christian, you might be nice, you might be moral, you might be decent, you might be a good person. Some non-Christians live even better lives than many Christians. And Satan wants you to believe you're wonderful because he loves pride. That's kind of his sin. He invented it, right? And as long as you're happy on his team, he's not going to disrupt things. But then sometimes he sees God at work in your life. And that's when oppression, obsession, and possession kick in. He'll begin to oppress you. Life difficulties, dark thoughts. He'll begin to lead you to obsessions. Your appetites begin to take over. Your desire for ambition, your yearning for approval. And he begins to own more and more of you. Sometimes he'll even possess you. He takes up a residency in more and more of your home. He comes in through the doors and the windows you leave open, the addictions, the moral compromises you make to get what you really want. And eventually, he can begin to possess more and more of you. And if you're a Christian, does Satan own your proverbial house? Yes or no? No. But can you open yourself up to all kinds of torment and all kinds of influence by inviting people and things into your life that shouldn't be there? Yeah. We don't know whether or not this man was a believer. We don't know much about him. All we do know is that he had opened up the doors and windows to his house, and at the point when Jesus shows up, there's actually a demon somehow connected to this guy. Now, I want, I want to be clear here. A Christian cannot be demon-possessed. Jesus owns them, but they can be demonically influenced by all the openings they leave in their life. And that's why when I repent for sin, when I'm getting down on my knees and talking to God, I say, God, close the doors that I've opened. Take back the ground that I've given. I command everything and everyone that's unclean, that doesn't love Jesus, away from me, away from my family. I pray against the enemy. I pray against his servants. I pray against their works. I pray against their effects. And I command them away from me and my family. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, to come in, to live in me, to fill up my house, to fill up my life, to fill up have your way in us. Jesus says in Luke 11, even if you get rid of the demons, but you don't have the Holy Spirit to take up residence in your proverbial home, you get what? Seven more demons worse than the first. It's a very serious matter. And it's one we get really uncomfortable talking about. In fact, I could sense some objections right now. I'm sure some of you are like, Satan would whisper in your ears, this is crazy talk. Right? What he's talking about is it's a biomedical condition. These people are just mentally struggling. They're people who hear voices. The truth is, they may actually be hearing voices. You ever think about that? Their issues may not all be psychosomatic. Some people, even lovers of Jesus, do have physical conditions, mental conditions. They do have abuse histories and drug histories. They do have clinical diagnoses, and they do need medicine. And yet, there are also people in bondage to the enemy who is tormenting them and harassing them and having his way with them. People who dismiss the spiritual to only evaluate the physical, they're never going to be able to do best in treating the whole person. And in this story, this man's in torment and Jesus sees him and delivers him. And right now, Jesus is here and he sees how some of you are in torment and he wants to deliver you today. Okay, how many of you right now are like, what kinds of things, uh, it'd be nice to know a list maybe of things that we do to open the doors and windows in our life? Anybody? Three or four of you? Okay. Well, good, because I wrote it in here, but we could skip it. 
I'm going to give you a list from Scripture. This is from Galatians 5. The Bible's true. It gives us wisdom. Why? We already said it. So that Satan won't outwit us with his schemes, right? We'll talk about some of these ordinary dynamic things. These are, these are just ways to open the doors and windows and invite trouble into your life, okay? First of all, sexual sin. Porn, fornication, adultery, bisexuality, bestiality, orgies, all kinds of stuff that you open yourself up with. False religion, false teaching, false gospel, false church. Rage, when anger takes over. Anger is not sin. The Bible says be angry and sin not. God gets angry, but it's righteous anger, right? What are you doing with your anger, right? So when you, when you say and do destructive things out of anger, that's rage. Bitterness, unforgiveness towards someone who sinned against you. Selfish ambition and envy, discontent. You're ungrateful. You're unhappy with where God has you and with what he's blessed you. Foolishness and drunkenness. The Bible says to be self-controlled and alert. How many of you, when you're drunk, can be self-controlled and alert? Not possible, right? Okay. Gossip and busybodying. That's evil? Yeah. It is. God said it. It's divisive. God likes to build towards unity. He's given this the spirit of unity, right? It's demonic by nature because it's tearing at the fabric of what God's trying to build. Lies, saying lies, believing lies, particularly about God and Jesus. And idolatry, worshiping anyone or anything other than Jesus. Those are all ways to open doors and windows in your life. And some of you say, well, I do some of those things all the time. Well, that may explain why you're confused. Why the love of God seems distant, why the enemy seems near, why life seems to grow dark and cold, why you get more proud and less humble, why the Bible seems to be more ridiculous, and why you started to feel more insightful than God's word. The enemy's already doing his work. He's already moving in. He's living in and around your house. Does he own your house? No, not if you're a Christian. But you've invited him in through the ordinary demonic, demonic because some of you just think sin is nothing more than breaking rules. It's not. It's picking sides. It's opening yourself up to the ongoing influence of evil. So what do you do? Repent of sin. Repent of sin. You close the windows and doors, and you invite the Holy Spirit to fill your life. And sometimes, if it escalates beyond ordinary to the extraordinary uh, demonic, here's, here's a few things that uh, might show up in the extraordinary demonic. First of all, torment. Fear, nightmares, night terrors, constant anxiety, debilitating the cycles of trauma after trauma, drama after drama. Also, physical injury, cutting, self-harm, spiritually influenced injury. Like this guy in, in the scripture we just read, uh, he's a man who Jesus healed, right? And his body was thrown on the ground. Now, because God was at work delivering him, he somehow miraculously was not injured at all because God was at work, but the demon sure tried his best, didn't he? Right? False miracles. Oh, but this person's amazing. They're a guru. They're a prophet. They're, they're, they're very powerful. Some of you have seen auras around people, had dreams and visions. Some of you have seen angels. Much of it, if not all of it, is demonic. Scripture says even Satan often appears as an angel of light to deceive. Second Corinthians. You guys remember in the book of Exodus, the false Egyptian prophets that squared off against Moses? They were doing miracles. By whose power? Was that God's power they were using? Or how about Simon the sorcerer in the book of Acts who performed miracles by demonic power? Spiritual power is often real, but it's often deceptive. Also, accusation. Some of you have this constant negative self-talk. Revelation 12.10 says, Satan is the accuser of the children of God that he accuses them day and night. Some of you hear negative thoughts. You're a failure. You're a loser. You can't be forgiven. You're not loved by God. You'll never change. You should just kill yourself. Some of you are wrestling with those kinds of thoughts constantly, and you just assume it's you thinking these thoughts. Have you ever considered that these thoughts may not be coming from within you? Maybe they're originating from outside of you and whispered into your heart by our enemy? That's how the enemy is fighting many of you, and some of you just entertain those thoughts and you take them in as your own. You think, you're there for, you think they're your thoughts. So what can we do? We need to learn to take every thought captive. We need to learn to test every spirit to see whether it be of God. We need to learn to doubt our doubts and trust God's word. Look, 
If the thoughts you're thinking don't line up with this, they're lies. If the, th- the words you're hearing in your heart say something different about you than what God says about you in this, they're lies. If the imaginations of your heart are leading you to desire things that God has not designed you for according to this, they're lies. So you better get to know this book because the battlefield's right here between your ears. It's in your mind. And listen, if, if this were like a human being following you around saying these kinds of things, what would the diagnosis be? You're being stalked. You're being oppressed by somebody who's either wicked or out of their head. Okay? Get some pepper spray. Take a self-defense class. Get a restraining order. Right? Because they're invisible, though. You think you're crazy. You may not be crazy. You may be being oppressed, stalked, under attack. Like that creepy new movie trailer, that Elizabeth Moss movie. Have you seen that? The Invisible Man? She's like, I'm out of my mind, but I swear there's somebody in that chair. It's like, in the movie, I, I get the feeling there is, actually. Otherwise, it'd be a boring movie. Um, let me ask you this. If that's true, how are you going to respond? Are you just going to roll over and take it? Yeah. Lastly, the thing the enemy is, is excited about in the extraordinarily spiritual and demonic is death. Ultimately, it says, we just read it in John 8, Satan is a murderer. He's been a murderer from the beginning. Satan wants you to die. Drugs, alcohol, sex, foolishness, reckless behavior, suicide. Death and murder and suicide is always Satan's ultimate goal for you. Meanwhile, he wants to bring as much chaos and brokenness and hell into your life and through your life into the world as he possibly can. And one of the great lies our culture believes and tells us is that spirituality is good. That's exactly what Satan wants you to believe. That's why Oprah has a whole segment called Spirit. Here's the deal. You know it's bad when it's not Jesus. You know it's bad when it doesn't line up with his word. That's the big idea. You've got to define who it is we're talking about. I don't want you to be spiritual. I want you to love Jesus. I don't want you to be connected to the spirit world. I want you to be filled with the one and only Holy Spirit of God. That's the only spirit you need. Spirituality in all of its forms, if Jesus isn't the center of it, something else is. And all of it is opening doors and windows. 1 John 4 says, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they be they love God or not. Here's one of our biggest problems in the Western church. People don't discern. They don't test spirits. They don't know the word. They don't come back to the scriptures. And what are the results? They open the doors and windows, and they don't, they don't even know those doors and windows exist. They invite in their enemies, and their life is destroyed. Or, sometimes, almost as bad, Satan blesses them. Satan makes them powerful and rich and, and famous and proud, and they don't see any need for God because their life is so good. Why? Because Satan has made them fat and happy for the day of his feast. Like the witch in Hansel and Gretel. Here's a candy house. Lure them into the candy house. Get them inside. Trap them there. Feed them lots of food. Make them fat and happy to eat them one day. Right? That's see, It's like a metaphor for the devil and what he's doing to a lot of people. This demonized man comes before Jesus, but by his own authority, Jesus casts this demon out. And the word gets out and spreads all over. Jesus is here. There's nobody like him. I've never seen power like this. I've never seen authority like this. Unprecedented, unequaled, unrivaled. Let's make this uh, very practical. Here at New City, do we believe in demons? Yes. Yes, we do. Do we believe Jesus has authority and power over demons? Have we seen or interacted with demonized people? Yes, we have. Kenny and I can both tell you a few hair-raising stories. I know some of you have a few stories of your own. Mission fields and even here in San Diego. I'll tell you a brief one. Once when I was a young minister at a church, um, in town, there was a young lady who showed up on the front row one night toward the end of service. She started manifesting, just started kind of going like this. And uh, one of the older ministers, his experience, he grabbed me. He's like, come on. <laughs> so I follow him down, and uh, this girl's just like kind of wigging out. Her eyes are closed or whatnot. He goes, miss, are you okay? And she goes, <laughs> never forget She's this deep voice, man. I'm telling you, it wasn't like in the movies where the lights went dark and bats started flying across. It wasn't like that, but 
I'll never forget, she looked at us wild-eyed and said, leave us alone. And at that moment, I was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> when that kind of thing happens, and it's rare, but it happens, fight or flight. <laughs> it kicks in. I remember we prayed for her. I remember we gathered some of the sisters around. We prayed for her. And that demon came out. I won't go into the whole story. There was writhing. There was actually vomit involved. It was, it was wild. Uh, it took about 30 minutes. God delivered her. Then we got to know her story. And she shared her story before publicly, so I know I can share this. Uh, her name was Annalie. Sweetheart. She's, she's since passed away. Horrible story. Yeah, I've shared her story here before. Her, her father had started molesting her when she was young, taking advantage of her, sinking into her bed at night. And then her mom died. Things just got worse. And then she got older. She was in her 30s, still living at home with her father. And kind of like a Stockholm Syndrome kind of a thing. He had pasted scriptures on the wall like some sick sanctuary to Satan and had his way with her night after night. And she was cutting herself and she was suicidal and finally he passed away and she didn't know where to go. She didn't know. She came to the closest church, proximity-wise. So she showed up that night and God delivered her. God set her free, man. Hmm. And God will deliver you from anything, man. Anything. There's nothing too hard for you. I say, why you bring that up? Because you need to know this isn't just some thing. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. It's not something that happened that we write about to scare kids. Right? Satan is real. He's really at work. He really does hate Jesus. And I don't want you to be scared of Satan and demons, but I don't want you to neglect him either. When you see someone who's spiritually oppressed or damaged, don't be afraid of them. And don't judge them. And don't be self-righteous. Be compassionate like Jesus was. Pray for them. Pray with them. Speak the truth of the scripture into their life. Now, in saying this, I know some of us immediately gravitate toward something I would call guruism. What's guruism? It's like, I need to get the super spiritual people on my side. Call the pastor. Call the prayer warrior. Please come help me. There's a demonic person. Truth is, everyone has everything they need to defeat the enemy. What do you need? What did Jesus have? It says here, he had authority and power. Let's talk about that briefly. Authority, power. If you're a police officer, if you're keeping the peace, you've got to have authority and power. It's a, a badge and a gun, right? If you only got one of those, uh, you're, you're going to be in over your head. You go run into a bank robbery scene, you're like, stop in the name of the law with your badge, and you don't got a gun? What's going to happen? Yeah, you're going to get shot probably, right? Or if you're just running around the streets, keeping the peace with a gun and no authority, you're not much better than a common criminal. You need authority and power. Anyone who goes out without the authority and power of Jesus and thinks, I'm going to ghost bust, I'm going to find me some demons, I'm going to crack me some heads, you're going to end up like the seven sons of Siva in the book of Acts where they go out to deal with demons, but they don't go with Jesus' authority and power, and they end up getting beaten and bloodied and stripped naked and running for their life. So what's the authority of Jesus Christ? Jesus had the Word of God. He was the Word of God incarnate. And Jesus sent us out on his mission in his name with his Word. Luke 10 says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy, nothing will harm you. You've been sent by Christ to be able to do what he did by his authority. It's not our authority, it's Jesus' authority. That's why we get to stay humble and not walk around with a bunch of spiritual pride and get lured into that trap, okay? You have the authority of Jesus' name. You've been baptized into his name. Yeah? That's the family name. It's your name now. You've been sent in his name. Secondly, you have the authority of the word of God because you read it and know it and it's dwelling in you and you can quote it when it gets twisted by the enemy like it did to Jesus in the wilderness. We tracking? It's not just the authority you need, it's also the power. What's the power of Jesus Christ? Jesus ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus gave us the same power of the Holy Spirit, power that comes through a life of prayer and dependence upon the Holy Spirit, power that comes from a life of fasting and dedication to God's will above all else. You have everything you need to defeat the enemy, the devil, the flesh, the world. You have everything you need because in Christ you have the authority and power of God himself. The Holy Spirit of God who created everything dwells within you. What scriptures say, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. You have the Holy Spirit in you if you're a Christian. You have the word of God. Read it, memorize it, pray it. And don't forget, you're not alone. You also have the family of God to walk with you, to remind you of God's truth, to pray for you to be strong when you're weak. You have everything going for you, including God. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Listen, we've all, myself included, opened doors and windows of our lives at times. So we all need to learn to repent of our sin, to ask the Holy Spirit to lock down the windows and doors in our life, and to be able, by God's authority and power, to command devils in their work away in Jesus' name. And guess what? When you do, they must obey. Not because we're powerful, but because he's victorious. And that's what we see not only here, but throughout the rest of Luke's gospel. Jesus ultimately is going to a cross. He's going to suffer and die in our place. I love the way Colossians 2 says it. In doing so, it says he died for our sins and he disarmed the powers and principalities and spirits and he triumphed over them and he canceled any rights they have on us. Yeah. So what he's saying is through sin and ignorance and folly and rebellion, we join Satan in his war against God. But through Christ's work in the gospel, And through our response of repentance and faith in Jesus because of his death, burial, and resurrection, our allegiance to Satan is canceled and our freedom in Christ is guaranteed. God's enemy has become our enemy. Jesus' authority and power has become our authority and power. Now as we face the evil of a broken world, we don't face it alone. We face it with God who's given us his very own authority and power and we face it with God's family. I'll close with this. Same chapter of Colossians, we just read from Colossians 2. Just a few verses earlier, he says this. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God, become a man. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So those powers and principalities and spirits and demons, he said earlier, he rules over all of them. Jesus is the highest authority. Jesus is God come to save us. Jesus fills us with his Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us his word so that we might have his same power and authority. We believe in Satan and demons, but we don't emphasize them. That's why this is probably the first message you ever heard me preach on this, because it's all about Jesus. So here's the bottom line today. Some of you are not Christians. You're vulnerable to Satan. Your life will eventually be hell if it's not already. Your eternal life will eventually follow in suit. Some of you are experiencing a lot of torment and confusion and death in your life right now. Some of you, Satan's tactic, instead of that, has been to make you fat and happy so that you have no urgent sense for a need for Jesus in your life. Some of you are Christians, and you're not possessed by Satan, but through unrepentant habitual sin and folly and false spirituality, you've opened the doors and windows in your life. You've invited people and things into your life that you need to repent of and kick out with the authority and power of Jesus. You need to lock the doors and windows behind them and you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we'll pray and we'll open up a time here for you to respond to God's word. The band's coming. Three things, three ways that we respond here. First of all, is prayer. Some of you will come up here and get prayer. And listen, some of you, if you come up here to get prayer today, I'm gonna be in one corner. We've got prayer warriors in every corner that are ready to pray for you. You're gonna experience deliverance today like you've never had before. Deliverance from demonic oppression from any, any way the devil's after you, from broken patterns in your life, from addictions and sin, because you have new understanding and new faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Some of you will come up here and you will savor the life of Christ through communion like never before. Taste his goodness today like never before because you'll realize the depth of what he saved you from. You'll realize the depth of what he did to save you from spiritual bondage the price he paid. And as you take that bread and wine into yourself and remember the price he paid to give you freedom, you'll rejoice and you'll celebrate in the goodness of God. And some of you, honestly, you just won't really know what to do. That's all right. There's no pressure. 
Ask Jesus to show you. As the band's playing, as you're worshiping along and hanging back, ask him to show you what to do. But listen, if you feel a nudge, feel, if you feel like God tells you to come up and get prayer, or if you feel like God tells you maybe even to go pray for somebody, any of you here, that's probably not the voice of the enemy. The voice of the enemy doesn't tell you to do things, good things for God normally, right? It's probably God telling you to do that. So just start listening to God's voice today. Take a step of faith and just imagine where he will lead you as you listen to his voice more and more as his voice goes louder and louder in your heart and life. Let's pray. Father God, I, um, I do pray against the enemy right now and his servants and their works. I pray that you would forgive us of our sins and cleanse us thoroughly as your people, holy and blameless and on mission here in this city. I pray that you'd reveal to us the resurrected spiritual authority of Jesus. Jesus, we claim your victory on the cross. Thank you for it. You paid our debt. You freed us from slavery. You defeated our enemy. We thank you for the victorious resurrection. That you are seated high above all principalities and powers and spirits. That you are the authority above all authorities, above the governments, above everything in our culture. You delegate your authority to those of us who follow you. We thank you for that. May we not obsess over Satan and demons. May we not deny Satan and demons. May we rebuke them in your name. May we do so humbly, not arrogantly, falling into the trap of spiritual pride. May my friends who are non-Christians here become Christians today. May my friends who are Christians repent of their sin, receive the, the filling to the full of the Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit, but fill them up in fullness. May they shut the windows and doors and not invite the enemy back into their life. We submit all this to you. We ask you to have your way in Jesus' name. Amen.